I've asked Pastor Chad to open up our series. I love it when this brother preaches and when he teaches. The first time I heard him teach was in a class, a workshop, about a year and a half ago, right after I had come on staff. And it was evident that God has gifted you, Chad, with the gift of teaching. And I took a lot of notes uh, in the first service. I'm looking forward to hearing the sermon in the second service. I'll be praying for Chad. And as we start from Colossians 1, verse 1, I thank God that I have a brother who can lead us off and kick off this series. Let's give it up for Pastor Chad and thank him for his ministry. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Well, good morning. It's, uh, we're going to start out this morning with the reading of God's Word. If you would, please open up your Bible or your Bible app to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to take a look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. And please stand with me as we read this passage. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is, a, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. You may be seated. So you could call it a tale of two churches, two churches located just 10 miles away from each other. Both of these churches were started by the same man. Uh, they were both in a, in a wealthy area. Two churches, the first church um, had its problems, nothing too big. Uh, they were correctable. The other church was a little bit different. Uh, church number two had more severe problems. Even though both, close in proximity, same wealth, very different churches. In church two, I want to look at a little more deeply. Because, see, things got so bad here at church number two, it actually made God sick. And he told him so. In Revelation chapter 3, it talks about this church. I want to take a deeper peek at it for just a moment. And here in Revelation chapter 3, it says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. It says, I wish you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have acquired great wealth and need nothing, but do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So you see, in this second church, it's in a place called Laodicea, and it's in modern-day Turkey, and it had become useless in the eyes of God. So he describes it in terms of water. Now, back at that time, hot water was useful. Hot water you could cook with. Cold water was helpful. You could take a drink of cold water and it would refresh you if it was a hot day. But they're somewhere in the middle. 
And it says they're lukewarm, and because they're lukewarm, God says, I'm going to spit you out. You're making me sick. And the reason they became useless is, is listed here. It says because they, were, they had said they were rich and have acquired great wealth and need nothing. The problem was with all that wealth, they had no idea how spiritually poor they were, and God calls for them to repent. Now, there's a sister church to this second church. It's a church uh, um, in Colossae, and it's 10 miles away. And we actually have a letter that was written to this church. It was written by Paul, and it's a much different story. And yes, this church had its problems. That's one of the reasons Paul was sending them a letter. But ultimately, Paul was thankful for this church in Colossae. But let me go back to that second church for just a moment, because as I was uh, praying and studying for the sermon today, I came across a very interesting statement about that second church, which is the church in Laodicea. And it compares it to many churches in America today. And it says this, that the church at Laodicea is typical of a modern church quite unconscious of its spiritual needs and content with beautiful buildings and all the material things that money can buy. So you see here there's a danger for us that's very relevant today. And I love Bible Center Church. I love the rich history that it has. But the question you and I need to tackle this morning is how do we keep our church from becoming a church like this one in a place called Laodicea. Bible Center has a wonderful 74-year history. As a matter of fact, we're coming up on our 75th anniversary. And I think we've got a church that's dedicated to gospel teaching. We've got an incredible staff. We've got a team of handsome, handsome pastors. (laughs) You know, they laughed in the first service when I said that. I'm not sure what's going on there. But, you know, even with all that, there's always a danger around the corner of being blind to our own spiritual needs. I believe there's an answer to this, and we find it here in Colossians chapter 1. And this morning, we want to focus on this first church in the city of Colossae, a church that Paul says in his opening statement that he's thanking God for. We're going to take a close look at a chain reaction of events that happened there in Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to look at what it is Paul was thanking God for this church, why he was thanking God for this church, and we're going to talk about how can we become a church, or how do we remain a church, that if the Apostle Paul were here today, he would be thanking God for. And you heard the passage, it's Colossians 1 verses 1 through 8, and we've got this letter, it was written from both Paul and Timothy. Uh, as it says there in the beginning, to these Christians living in the city of Colossae. It was written about 60 A.D. Uh, That letter was written in 60 A.D. As a matter of fact, Paul mentions in the letter to Colossae that they need to take that letter and they need to take it to the people of Laodicea. He wants them to read that too. It also mentions a letter written from Paul to Laodicea as well. And he wants them to read that letter. But somewhere between 60 A.D., when that letter was written by Paul, To 95 A.D., when you heard that letter that was written by the Apostle John to Laodicea, things went south in this church. 
Again, the church in Colossae had its own problems, and that was one of the reasons Paul was writing this letter. They had placed an importance on angels that was unnecessary. They had misplaced the importance of Christ. So Paul's writing this letter because he says, you need to put things in their proper place. You've gotten them out of sorts, and you need to put them back where they belong. So he starts out the letter with this warm greeting, and he's addressing the saints or these Christians there. And then we get to verse 3. And here Paul tells this church that when he and Timothy are praying, they're thanking God. Now, this was not a church that Paul had planted. This church was planted by a man named Epaphras that he mentions later on. And Epaphras, he planted both those churches, and he pastored in those churches for some period of time. He's the one relaying messages back and forth to Paul. And as we start moving through these verses, we see the specific things that Paul is thanking God for regarding this church. And like I said, it's really a chain reaction of events. And you see the results first, and then as you work your way down, you see the first cause of what it was Paul was so thankful for, and we see it there in verse 5. It says, your faith and love have arisen from the hope laid up for you in heaven, which you have heard about in the message of truth, the gospel. So how are we at Bible Center Church, how are we going to be a church that is worthy of thanks? It starts with a gospel foundation. It starts with a gospel foundation. And we see here in this church, it was the gospel that started the chain reaction. Now, before we go any further, we need to talk for a moment about, well, what, what is this gospel? And I know that some of you have heard this a hundred times. And for someone here, this may be the first time someone has spelled out what this gospel is. The word literally means good news. It's the good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came down from heaven to put on himself the sins that you and I have committed. Now, all of us are sinners. Uh, it, it, it's clear from the Scriptures, Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if you know, the, if you know about the word all, all means all. And that's all all means. We're all born with this cancer called sin. And what Christ did, he came down to earth and he took that cancer out of us and he put it in himself that through his death, through his crucifixion, he would take the penalty of our sins. Three days after his crucifixion, the Father raised him from the dead. Now that is the saving work that Jesus did on our behalf. It's by trusting in what Jesus did for us, that's how we become Christians. That's how, that's how we become saved. This is what Christ did for us. Something that we could never have done for ourselves. Now, there's no magical formula of words when it comes to becoming a Christian. There's not one particular prayer. Really, it is by simply trusting in the saving work of Jesus Christ. That's what saves you. So this is what Jesus did for us. The, the gospel is the redemption of mankind, and in doing so, you share this hope of heaven. So that's what it is. Uh, it's very simple. As we continue on, we see what the gospel is doing. There in verses 5 and 6 of Colossians 1, it says, It is bearing fruit and it is growing. You know, in the book of Galatians, uh, it lists out what's called the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. All these things, this is the fruit of the gospel. 
you know, one of the blessings I have uh, is to get to work with some of our older saints here at Bible Center Church. And I like to work with them because I get to work with these mature Christians that have been walking with God for a very long time and trusting in the Lord for a very long time. And they've had more life to grow and produce fruit. I hope I get there one of these days. I hope I can have patience like them. One of the church fathers by the name of Chrysostom in the year 349, he was a, it was a pastor way back in, in that era, and he said this gospel fruit that we're talking about is the fruit of good deeds. It's what helps us, enables us, to do the good that we need to do. So this gospel, it grows and grows. And notice twice in verses 5 and 6, Paul refers to this as truth. He calls it truth. See, he recognizes that untruth has slipped into the church. Literally, it was like the culture at that time was, was coming in through the walls. And it was necessary to get truth out there to these people because he was concerned about the negative effect the, cult, the, the culture was having on this church as it was coming in. And this has really been a problem in the church since its inception. There's always been a challenge just holding on to the truth. And in the age that you and I are living in right now, there's even a hesitance to call anything truth. There's something that slipped in called relativism, and there's an implication there in the name that you may pick up on. See, what relativism says is, well, your truth, it's like your truth, okay? And I think it's great that you have your truth. And I think it's great that you've done this Christianity thing, that you believed in Jesus, but, you know, that's not, that's not really my truth. See, I have a different system that works for me. See, you have your truth and I can have my truth. But you see, there's really no way this can work. You see, either Jesus is God or he's not God. There either is truth or there is not truth. Either the gospel is true or the gospel is not true. There is no room for this thing called relativism. So that just doesn't work. And I want to encourage you, be very patient with people who have not yet trusted the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of obstacles to belief out there. As a matter of fact, you may be here this morning struggling with one of those obstacles right now. You know, there is a cynicism among many people towards what they perceive as Christianity. And there's this vitriol, as a matter of fact. There have been so many televangelists, unfortunately, that have been involved in these very public scandals, that there's an anger towards Christianity, or again, what people perceive as Christianity. I think you saw a lot of that this, uh, this past week against Joel Osteen. I certainly don't agree with everything Joel Osteen says, but I think he took a lot of heat for something that probably he wasn't necessarily guilty of. And I see some people that perceive Christianity it's kind of a political machine, uh, a political machine, a voting block that politicians are trying to exploit. So there's all these obstacles that many people have towards trusting in this gospel of Jesus Christ. By the way, none of those things are Christianity. It, 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 it's really quite simple. I mean, it's, it's about God's redeeming mankind through the work of Jesus Christ. In a nutshell, that is the gospel. So, it is essential that we at Bible Center Church 
have a foundation of the gospel. And by the way, I'm very grateful that Pastor Matt, I remember in one of our very first meetings, uh, this has just been last year, he said, you know what, here at Bible, Church, at Bible Center Church, we're going to be all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not every church is doing that, but we are. We want to be this kind of church that uh, the Apostle Paul would thank God for. So we must have this gospel foundation like this church had in Colossae. So since these Colossians, they heard the truth of God, they believed the gospel message, it set off this chain reaction. And Paul sees manifest in this Colossian church three very important virtues. He speaks of them a lot in his, his epistles. Uh, as a matter of fact, some people call these the triad virtues of Christianity. And we see the first one uh, back in verse 4. So go back there, verse 4. It says, Since we heard about your faith in Christ. So building on that gospel foundation, the second thing we need is an upward-looking faith. We need to have an upward-looking faith. The faith that's described here is what Paul had heard about, he and Timothy, the faith in Christ these Colossians had. So he'd heard good reports about the people in Colossae. They came from Epaphras. It was a, he was a fellow laborer of Paul. And Paul here talks about their faith in Christ. Now pay attention to this. Because Paul and Timothy are rejoicing not only for that initial faith they had in the gospel, but a daily faith, a continuing faith, a faith that you and I need to have every single day as we are walking through this Christian life. And that's so important. Paul and Timothy are rejoicing over a continuing demonstration of the Colossians' trust in Christ. Continually demonstrated. Um, during the terrible days of, of World War II, the Germans were constantly bombing England, just constantly. And there was one situation, there was one event where a man and his son were hiding inside of a building. A bomb comes down, blows it up. He and his son were able to make it outside. They run out into the front yard where there's a, a crater from where a previous bomb had fell. Now, it was dark. It was smoky. The dad proceeds to go ahead. He jumps down inside this crater. The son is standing there on the edge, and he can hear his dad's voice. His dad's saying, son, jump. You've got to jump. And the boy says, but dad, I can't see you. I don't know where you are. The dad is looking up, and he can see the flames coming out of that building that had just been destroyed, and he said, Son, I can see you. So the son jumps, trusting that the father was going to catch him. You know, you and I are called to walk by faith and not by sight. From time to time, you and I have to trust in God, not because we see him, but because we are seen it's not that we know all the answers, but because we are known. This is why we trust in Christ. This is why we have an upward-looking faith. See, it takes continued faith to be able to live this Christian life. Think about John 3.16 for just a minute. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believed, no, believes. It takes continued belief. To live out our faith, it's a present tense verb. And we see this in the Lord's Prayer as well. Uh, when Jesus was teaching the disciples how to pray 
in Matthew chapter 6. He didn't say, Lord, give us this month our monthly bread. He didn't say, give us this year our yearly bread. What did he say? Give us this day our daily bread. Now, I'll be honest. I, I really don't like living that way, okay? If it were up to me, my 401k today would be ready for retirement. I don't like this daily trusting business. It's hard. Uh, it's difficult. But think about those people down in Houston, okay? Think about sitting in a shelter, and you can hear that rain coming down. You can see those reports coming in on the TV. And what choice do you have at that point but to trust God no matter what? It's that kind of trust that doesn't say, Lord, I'll trust you if my home is unaffected by this flood. No. See, Christian trust says, God, even if I get back and my house is flattened and everything I have is gone, I'm going to trust you. This is the kind of trust that we're talking about. This is the kind of trust that we're called to. So we want and need this upward-looking faith. It doesn't need stability of circumstances to thrive. As a matter of fact, it can even thrive in the worst of circumstances. Sometimes the worst of circumstances can even cause it to thrive. So we move on in this same verse, and we also see the Colossians had a love for all the saints. So in addition to a faith that looks upward, we need a love that looks outward. We need an outward-looking love. Now, in several of Paul's letters, he talks about these virtues. He talks about faith. He talks about hope. He talks about love. In Hebrews 11, he says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And then in Romans 5, 5, he says, hope does not disappoint us. Nevertheless, in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3, he says, but the greatest of all these is love. And the Colossians had a love, it says, extended to all the saints, all believers everywhere. And Jesus said, this is how people are going to know you're Christians. It's by the love you guys have for each other. That's how you'll know that's how people will recognize you as being a Christian. Now, if, if you listen to the radio for 10 minutes, you're going to hear, they, they got love all over the place, okay? Love will find a way. Love keeps us together. All you need is love. But is that the kind of love we're talking about here in the New Testament? You see, this love that's often sung about is an emotion. It's a feeling. And when you get to the New Testament, we're talking about something different. We're talking about action. We're talking about actions that are aimed at the welfare of other people. That's the kind of love we're talking about in the New Testament. It's a love that improves the welfare of others. It follows this pattern of, God, of a loving God sending His Son to save the world. And it can manifest itself in, in so many ways. You know, when we talk about loving people, uh, yes, you can love people in big ways, you can give your life for someone, you know, no greater love is this than he would give up his life for a friend. Yes, that's, that's loving someone. But you know what? Love can manifest itself in some of the teeny tiny ways. Have you ever thought that not spitting your gum out on the sidewalk where people are walking 
is a small act of love? Have you ever thought that even when you had some, some horrible argument with a family member, and to be honest, maybe you're entertaining thoughts of revenge and murder and everything else, but you walk into a public place and decide, you know what, I'm not going to drag this behind me. I'm going to choose to treat the people well that are around me. That's a small act of love. Men, toilet seat, you know what I mean. Small act of love. Just takes a second. So you see, we've got to get out of our heads that, that love is something self-serving that we, that we feel. And this is the irony. Oftentimes when we do something loving for someone, you find out that you actually are fond of that person. And it can even produce those fond feelings for someone. And I love this story. Um, there was a newspaper columnist named George Crane. He was also a minister. He talks about this wife that comes into his office, and she's just full of hatred towards her husband. And she says, not only do I want to get rid of him, she said, I want to get even. And before I divorce him, I want to hurt him as much as he hurt me. So he comes with this ingenious plan. And he says, here's what I want you to do. Go home and act like you really love your husband. Tell him how much he means to you. Praise him for every decent trait you can find. Go out of your way to be as kind, considerate, and generous as possible. Spare no efforts to please him. Enjoy him. Make him believe you love him. After you've convinced him of your undying love and that you cannot live without him, then you drop the bomb. Tell him you're going to get a divorce. And he said, that's how you're really going to hurt him. So he tells her all that. And then with revenge in her eyes, she said, that's beautiful. What a plan. Was he ever going to be surprised? So she did it. She pranced out of that office with enthusiasm. And she did just that. For two months, she showed him love and kindness. She listened to him. She gave. She reinforced his feelings. She shared with him. And then she didn't come back. So this doctor got, uh, perhaps he got a little concerned, but after two months went by, he called her and said, well, are you ready for your divorce? And she said, divorce? Never! She said, I really discovered that I do love him. And her actions had changed her feelings. Motion had resulted in emotion. And the ability to love is established not so much by fervent promise as it is repeated deeds. She just did loving things for him. This is something that C.S. Lewis recognized. And in his book, Mere Christianity, he says this. He says, Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. He says, Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. 
So we need this outward-looking love. We need this love that seeks the welfare of other people. A great place to start would be finding out how you can help these people who have been devastated by this hurricane. Then finally, we see in verse 5. It says, Your faith and love have arisen from the hope laid up for you in heaven. So in addition to a gospel foundation, in addition to an upward-looking faith, in addition to an outward-looking love, what we now see is a hope that looks forward, a forward-looking hope that they had here in Colossians. But when we say a hope that looks forward, looks forward to what? See, we live in a, in a fallen world. We live with, with fallen human beings, and there's, there's really no hope to be found in a world like we have. Uh, many have put their hope in science, and science has actually shattered many people's hope. You know, I still don't know if the globe is warming. I still don't know what causes cancer. I still bang my toe on furniture in the middle of the night, and it just hurts like crazy. So it's become difficult for some people to believe in a God that would even notice or care about us. And consequently, many people live without any hope of salvation, not only in this life, but certainly not in a life to come. As a matter of fact, what we see growing more and more in many people, particularly in, in teenagers, is depression which is oftentimes described as, as a sense of hopelessness, prolonged feelings of hopelessness. And there was a national study done uh, in trends in depression among adolescents and young adults, and it came out in the Journal of Pediatrics on November 14th. And they found that the prevalence of teens who reported being depressed in the previous 12 months jumped from 8.7% in 2005 to 11.5% in 2014. That's a 37% increase among teens in experiencing depression. And according to the Department of Health and Human Services, the rates of depression among girls aged 12 to 17 in 2015 were more than double that of boys. Uh, in the U.S., one in five teenage girls experiences depression. And I don't want to ignore it. There are physical factors when it comes, to, when we start talking about the topic of depression. Uh, there's a lot of chemistry involved. There's things that people are born with that can make them more prone to being depressed and having these feelings of hopelessness. But I also want to submit that perhaps some of that despair could be in a misplaced hope. You see, even though we are in the wealthiest most technologically advanced country in the world, we currently rank third in the world in terms of rates of depression and hopelessness. You see, Paul's making it very clear here that this hope is in nothing that this world can offer, but it's what he describes as being laid up in heaven. Now, we can assume that what Paul is saying, what he's speaking of, is this glorious future that all believers in Jesus Christ have waiting on them. It's this hope of resurrection. It's this hope of Christ being in us. It's this uh, implication, and we get this from Colossians, 
that Christians are being transformed into the image of God, and someday we're going to be resurrected just like Christ was. This is the hope of the believer. This is the hope of the Christian, that this thing is temporary we're doing right now. As a matter of fact, the older I get, I realize it doesn't last all that long. So many things we strive for, all the stuff in this life, the the material things, and if you're like me, you probably saw the woman on TV who just won something like $700 million. It's like, wow. Oh, why couldn't that have been me? I wouldn't mess this thing up like these other people did. I would know exactly how to spend that money. And again, I want to quote something on, uh, that, that C.S. Lewis said. I know I quote him a lot. It's just because he said so many good things. But he said this. He said this in his book, The Weight of Glory, that he who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. Let me say that again. He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. You and I, as believers, we have to discipline ourselves to only hope in what lies ahead. That is not at all an easy thing to do. Uh, But that's exactly what we're being begged to do here. This glorious future where we're all going to be together with the Lord. Just imagine for a second that I told you that I had, I had worked it out with your, with your bosses and your families, and right after this service, you and I, I mean all of you, we're all going to go on this huge vacation together. It's all expenses paid. It's going to be in, in some beautiful tropical location, and we're all going to get along perfectly. It's going to be glorious. See, there's what that thing is I'm describing. This is called heaven. That's what heaven is. It's this forever time where we're going to be together and God is going to be right there with us, enjoying beauty that we, we can't even imagine right now. This is what we're to put our hope in. This is where hope lies. And, and what's fascinating, if you look there in verse 5, it says that both faith and love spring from this hope. Now let's just kind of reason that out for a second because this makes, this makes perfect sense. Should it be surprising that the less we expect and demand and hope from this world to fill us up on the inside, the better we'll be to look upward toward God and outward toward others? the less I'm enthralled by what this world may or may not be able to offer me, the more enthralled I'm going to be in, in the things of the Lord, which include loving the people around me. That's why these two things spring out of this hope that we have in heaven. It's not that this world can offer me anything. And the degree to which I can put my hope in this forward-looking, glorious place, the degree to which I can do that will be the degree to which I'm able to love the people sacrificially around me because I'll be holding very loosely to anything this world can offer. This is the hope that we can have. There's nothing in this world that can carry the weight of that kind of hope. So we have a forward-looking hope. So we want to be this church that if the Apostle Paul were here right now, he would be thanking God for. 
We want to have this upward-looking faith, this outward-looking love, and this forward-looking hope, all built on a gospel foundation. I can remember in 2006, uh, it was during the Christmas season, Melissa and I had come to Bible Center Church, and we were uh, attending the service here, and, and we loved it. I mean, we just, we loved the people. We went to an ABF class. We loved the, the preaching that morning, got a chance to talk to Sean afterwards. And I remember we went to Panera Bread, and we're sitting there by that fireplace they have at Panera, and we were just kind of dreaming. And we thought, wouldn't it be cool if God brought us back to Charleston, West Virginia someday, and we got to minister and be part of Bible Center Church? Because we had experienced these things. See, Bible Center has got a rich 74-year history of all these virtues that we've been talking about. And what I'm praying for is that we have another 75 years that look like these first 74. Please pray with me. Almighty God, you have blessed us with faith and a hope Lord, that someday we will for all eternity be with you. And God, I pray that every single man and woman here would have their hope laid up in heaven. Lord, and I pray for those that are here this morning that may be struggling with whether or not they even buy this whole Christianity, God. And I pray that they would see it for what it really is and not perhaps what they have just perceived it to be. That this is about a walk with you. This is about accepting this wonderful gift of salvation that you've extended to us. And Lord, I pray that we would have a rock-solid faith that can endure any storm that comes in life. God, I pray that we would have a selfless love that looks out for the good of everyone we see. And Lord, I pray that we would have this hope that you speak of. God, we ask it all. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.